He's from Heritage Bible Church. He's one of the associate pastors there at Heritage Bible. Uh, he's been here before, so let's welcome back Pastor Adam Christian. And religiosity 
is the state of being a living, being part of an organized religion. So Nebraska Christian is part of an organized religion. This is really about this is a Christian school, right? So we would expect to be a chapel about the Bible or about God, about Jesus. That's, that's logical because this is a Christian institution. You'd be expected to pray to God during your school sometimes. You'd be expected to learn about the world we live in according to what scripture says. This is a Christian institution. Where does, where does a Christian go to get who they are, who God is? Where do you go? You go to what? The Bible. That's how God reveals himself is through the Bible. It's a spiritual book that God gives us to reveal who he is. And so we are part of a, we, we're religious in that sense because we're here together. Looking into what God says about who lives in his word. But there's a negative sense of religiosity. In the sense, it's, it's an exaggerated embodiment of certain aspects of religious activity. It's kind of like going through the motions of religion without really understanding the meaning of it. It's going through doing religious practices, but not really doing it with all your heart. It's just kind of like a hypocrite. You're kind of just like showing it. It's like, I, I just do this because we're told to do this. I just do this because I think this is how it is, so I'm just going to. I'm going to pray. Because you do that. Um, other things like that. So it's really, a good example could be like, when I was your age, every March, February, March, and April, I could not eat meat on Friday. Did you ever have to do that? I had to do that when I was your age. And I'm, I like meat, you know, so I always got to get sick on Friday. Now why did I, I still don't really understand why I had to do that. That's what my religiosity told me to do. So I just did it. But sometimes I, I cheated. I was eating. But that's one way of doing religiosity. You just don't know. You just go through it. You don't really think about it. You just do it. So I, I, that's a negative thing. And there's people we're going to look at today that do the religiosity kind of thing. And that's the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we're going to see what Jesus did to them. Because they really tried to accuse him. You know what accusing is? Accusing is you bring somebody, something against somebody because you think they did something wrong. So they're going to accuse you. And so we're going to look at how the scribes accused Jesus. So I'm excited for this. I think this will be beneficial for, for you and I and anybody here. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer for help for this, if you don't mind. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to open up your word and for helping to explain your word accurately, help me to really portray your truth. And Lord, I pray this would be helpful and profitable to everyone here. And Lord, you are the one who reveals yourself through your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, that you do that today. And, Lord, that you would just show us how amazing your son is. And that we would constantly love him and, and we'll put our faith in him. So I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, four truths about Jesus. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. My understanding is that you have, I think, Pastor Jesse here last week. Is that correct? Pastor Jesse, did you learn something about Jesus, about his forgiving sins? So we're going to look at, I'm just going to give a short overview of probably what he talks to you about. In Mark chapter 2, read the first verse. It says, when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was teaching the word to them. When Jesus was at a house in Capernaum, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and crowds are coming there. And there's a problem. There, there's, there came, and there they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, being unable to get in because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an entire opening, they let him down by a pallet on 
and this is paralytic as well. So you can see what's going on. You can imagine going to an event with tons of people, and they can't get into Jesus. They want to see Jesus heal their friend, and as they follow him, they just they can't get in. So they don't give up. They, they, they really believe that Jesus can heal them for whatever they do. They have a plan to drop him down right in front of Jesus from the roof. And what Jesus do? He says, your faith has healed you. You're forgiven. So what do the Pharisees do? You can't do that. You're not God. You can't forgive sin. So what do they accuse Jesus of? They accuse him of blasphemy, which is speaking wrongly about God, which is saying something about God that's unfair, disrespecting God's name. That's what they're, they're accusing him of. So what does Jesus do? He says, what's harder to do? Is it easier to forgive sin or to heal a paralytic? Which is a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, look, when he heals him, show him that he's God. So Jesus has total authority to forgive sins because he is God. So we're going to, so I know, I know you guys it's early. And I don't like to just listen for a long time sometimes. I like to talk. So I'm going to give you a chance to talk today. But here's the rule. You have to say only one word at a time and do it all together. So today we're going to, when I have a word for you, you're going to have to say it back. So our first point is that Jesus, the first truth, is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So you're going to say the word authority. So Jesus has, okay, you do better than that. Jesus has to forgive sins, right? That's our first point. And you see that in the text. You look down right below, verse 10, what does it say? It says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, pick up your mat, go home. Why can Jesus forgive sins? Because he's God. Is God a God of forgiveness? Yes. Is God a God of mercy? Yes. Is God a God of grace? Yes. Is God a God of compassion? Yes. But he's also a God of judgment. And so people need forgiveness for sin. You need forgiveness for sin. I need forgiveness for sin. Because you know why? All of our consciences are guilty. When we compare ourselves to God's standards, all of us don't measure up. And all of you know that. Like you, you, even here today, you probably sin. Some of you will go home and disobey your parents. You'll go home. You won't aim to please God for anything. You'll play sports for your own glory. You're going to not love your neighbor as you think. You're not going to love your, your fellow student as you think. You're going to be a bully as you think. And some of you don't realize that that's just part of being human. You just are sinful. And Romans 3.23 says, All fall short of the glory of God. It's sin. It's all sin. It's missing the mark. All of us do. We're not good people. We're bad people. We have something wrong with us in our thought life, in our feelings, in our decisions, in our motivations. It's affected the whole person, you know? And so, because of that, guess what? We're all guilty. And I don't know if you've ever known like a smoke alarm. You guys have a you know, smoke alarm for us? Have you been in a house fire before and the smoke alarm goes off? And it's like, whew, smoke alarm goes off. I gotta get out of the house because there's a fire coming. Smoke alarms are good, they're a warning sign. And you don't have a conscience right now, and that. When you hear about God's word and law and standards, your conscience is like, wow, something's going on in there. There's like a, there's like a siren going on. Like, this isn't right. Wrong. Eh. And you get guilty because that's how you're made. God made you in his image. He's given you a conscience. And you know right from wrong. And because of that now, what does God do? He's a good judge. He has to punish sin. And because of that now, you're held guilty before God. And he must punish sin. Sin. sin separates us from God, both now and all eternity. So that's bad news. And what does God do with sinners and wicked people? Eventually they're going to be put in the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 22, you see that. 
And so all these all have an idea that this is a literal place called hell. And it's a place of eternal conscious torment. So that's bad news. When we get cut off from God, we're faced with judgment. And we just can't keep God's standards. And we just can't get in. But what's the good news? Jesus has come on our story because of his sin. So that's good news. Forgiveness means it's a promise to pardon somebody for their error. It's a promise to, to pardon somebody for what they did wrong. So you got to believe in that promise. And we can have that forgiveness of sin just like that paralytic did. So that's our first point. And Jesus, if you study the book of Mark, Jesus has already shown that he's the Son of God. John the Baptist came and he said he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus came and he healed people. Thank you, came this week completely. Nobody's ever done that before in this week. And then you have him casting out demons. And then you have when he does his baptism. God the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. So there's tons of proof in the book of Mark that Jesus is the Son of God. Then we expect the Pharisees and the scribes to buy into that and they don't. Now we get to verse 13, and you see, scroll down there. My text today was given to me was Mark chapter 2, 13 to chapter 3, verse 12. So I'm going to kind of skim through that, but I want to give you the truth from that passage you can take away from. And one of those is we see in, in verse 13 that Jesus and on Jesus. Jesus came to call sinners. That's our second point. Jesus came to call sinners. Who did Jesus come to call? He came to call. Come on. This is the morning. Come on, let's hear it. Came to call. Yeah. He did not come to call the righteous. That's the good point of this next part. And Jesus is popular. If you look at verse 13, he went, he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So I have a map here. I think I want to show you what's going on. That's kind of hard to see. But they're pretty much on the north side of Sea of Galilee. So they're getting the right economy. It's kind of like that here. Uh, sea of Galilee is like a big lake. And Capernaum's not that big of a town. But it's on a highway, a major highway in this day. So a lot of goods are being transported. People move through this highway. But it's also a port city as well. So ships come there. And at that time in the Roman government, Israel is pretty much under Rome. Who do they pay taxes to? They pay taxes to Rome. And at this point, there's tax collectors in Capernaum. So Jesus, as he gets out of the home, he's just killed a man. He goes and passes by a Greek Levi, which is also Matthew. This is a Greek name for Levi. And he's the son of Alphys, Alphys. And he's sitting at the tax booth, doing his job. And what does Jesus do? He says, follow me. And what does Levi do? He got up, he got up and he followed him. Good response. So Levi, in a sense, leaves his business, leaves his trade, and decides to leave everything to follow Jesus. Now, he doesn't just abandon his job and doesn't take care of it. He probably has his colleagues taking care of the, of the tax booth as he goes. But it's a good response to follow Jesus. So he must have some idea who Jesus is. He's probably heard him already teach to him. And as we know, we got the book of Matthew. He's a, he's a guy on this can tell us. But really, it was, it, what Mark is trying to say in this, he says, it happened that when he was reclining at the table in his house, that is Levi's house, Matthew's house, Levi basically has a big feast for Jesus. And what Levi did, he invites all his colleagues, all his friends to hear about Jesus. He wants them to hear the gospel. 
And that's what he does here. He writes in the dinosaur. And they're already laughing and eating and feasting. And it says that there were many of them. So it's not just a couple. There was a lot of these tax collectors and his friends who were called sinners. And tax collectors, you need to know that in, in Israel, they're not really, they were kind of a negative stigma to them. Because you're collecting taxes from your own people to pay your own life. And then the religious leaders really disdain tax collectors because they think they're betraying their nation. And they're just not religious. They're just, they're irreligious, they're outcasts, they don't count them. They're like sinners. And then sinners kind of a broad category of people that are just non-religious and just they don't really think they have any hope for being saved. And so when the scribes come and they see that Jesus is teaming with these sinners and tax collectors, what's their, what do they accuse Jesus of? Like, why why is he, Jesus, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? As if that's a sin. And it's really not. Because in hearing this, Jesus said to them, Is it not those who are healthy who need a physician? But those who are sick. Now, how many of you go to the doctor when you're feeling sick? Does anybody ever do that? You might go maybe for a med test just to check it out, but you might just go to the doctor when you're feeling bad. You go to the doctor, you go to the doctor when you have. A broken leg, or you jam your finger playing basketball with Megan just for kids. She was a senior in high school, you know, senior in high school. <laughs> so you, you pretty much go to a doctor when you need to feel better, when you need to know your diagnosis what's going on with you. That's the purpose of a, a doctor. And I've been at junior high camp, high school camps, and we have a doctor on staff at a camp. And every time a, a kid got hurt, a young person sprained their leg, guess who was there? The doctor. That's what he does. So Jesus, who's he just going to hang around? Jesus came for sinners, right? He's going to be around sinners. And he's going to tell them the good news, how they can be saved. And so that's what he does. That's why he came. Jesus came to forgive sins, and he came to call the sinners. What does it mean to call? He's basically summoning these people. He's basically preaching the gospel, telling them, put your faith in me, and turn from your ways, and you'll be saved. That's pretty much the message. Don't look to your works. Don't look to what you do with your religiosity. Look to me, he's saying. But the Pharisees, they don't have room in their system to put Jesus. So they just put him as this guy who eats with sinners and tax collectors. And he, he claims to be like a Messiah. He claims to be God. But God just can't eat with sinners. He can't, can't eat with tax collectors. It just couldn't happen. He just, they can't put it in their framework. So Jesus tries to put it in their framework, but they still don't do it. So Jesus... Jesus has to defend that. So what's our first truth? That Jesus has authority, right, to forgive sins. Jesus came to call the, there you go, right? That's what he came for. And then we see another accusation in verse 18. We see there's an accusation that Jesus doesn't fast. John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do your disciples Disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So, in that day, you know, there's only really one day a year where Israel's supposed to fast, not the day of atonement. Otherwise, it's kind of a volunteer basis. And, but at that time, Israel was pretty much adopting the idea of religious leaders where you fast like twice a week, you became more prominent, and you became more of a pillar type thing. Like, I fast, and I, I put my face like really down because I was fasting. So, it's like a pill off thing. Fast is really awesome. And so they kind of got killed in their religion. And what happened was, they see Jesus, well, he doesn't fast like John disciples do and like we do. So he's not legit. 
and he was kind of living it all, if you will. The bridegroom is with him. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot help him. So I've never been to a wedding before, a wedding reception. What do you do at a wedding? It's a time of celebration and experience. Can you imagine coming to a wedding and you're like, oh, this is boring, I don't like this, and I don't want my thing, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that would be offensive. Have you been to my wedding? I got married to my precious wife, Jenny. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is boring, I don't want to do it. Are you going to eat food? I'm like, this is a time of celebration, right? And the point that Jesus is making is, is that he's going to, come to the day where he's going to die and be raised from the dead. You're not going to have him anymore. This is a time of celebration. God is with him. When you fast, fast is basically a practice where you're taking time to focus on God and not eat. This is not bad. You can do that. This is not a silly thing. He's just a private matter. And it's a time where you pray to God and you want to be near to him. But in this case, Jesus is right there in front of you. You don't need to fast. He's right there. They can do it. And so that's the point he's trying to make. This is a time of celebration. But there's coming a day where he's going to go back to the Father, and that will be the time when you want to. But the Pharisees, they, they don't have any room in the system for him. I mean, there's two analogies. He talks about, basically, he talks about throwing an old patch, throwing a new patch on the old, basically putting a new wine in the old wineskin. I'm not going to get into all the details of the time. Basically, you can't add something new to something old. And that's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They, they can't add this to the system. That Jesus is now the promise of the new covenant, that he's the Messiah, and that he's going to die and raise the dead. They, they didn't get that. They have all the scriptures, have all the proofs, and yet they still don't get it. So, Jesus, in this one, we see he predicts really his death and resurrection. That's the third point, that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. We got two words in this one. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. He calls that shot. And if you want to see it later on, flip over to Mark 8, 31. He tells his disciples that too, but they still don't believe him. It's not even the Pharisees, it's even the disciples. In Matthew 8, 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. That's Mark 8 31. And that's a major theme in Mark that Jesus knows he's got so much amount of time before he dies. And because he ministered, he came to save people. And then we also see some other issues. And I'm just going to briefly summarize it that we have a Sabbath issue. So in verse 23, Jesus says, going through the grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples. And they make their way along while picking the heads of the grain. They're going through farmland, and as they go, they pick some heads of grain to eat because they're hungry. So what do the Pharisees do? Look, why are your disciples doing what's not lawful on Sabbath? You gotta slow down and look at that. Is that really true? Because in the Old Testament, you're not supposed to do commercial labor on Sabbath, right? And that wasn't the idea. It's, it's, they're, what they're doing here is they're just taking food to survive. So they're not really breaking a Sabbath. It's something that is okay. There's legalism to the Sabbath law. And then he said to them, Have you never read the scriptures about David? When he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? And so he goes like, Hey, look at the scriptures. Look, David did this on the Sabbath. He went to the priest, Abiathar, and basically took some of the show bread that was supposed to be for the priest. But God never really confronted him. Well, technically, we don't see any evidence of it. So God is saying, it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. And so um, he says, 
pretty much from man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God made Sabbath for man. He gets some rest, some recreation. And to rest in the labor so they could trust God that God's going to provide. So he kind of confronts the, the, the Pharisees where they think the Sabbath was really was really for man for the Sabbath. And so they put the wrong twist on it. And he was just so the man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So man, that's what Sabbath was made for. Of course, today we live in New Covenant, and the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not received rest is the Sabbath commandment. And that's why we don't do the Sabbath. We rest on Lord's Day through Sunday, which happens in Acts transition. And so we it's good to have a principle of rest. But today we don't have like you gotta keep the Sabbath. We don't do that. We the wisdom is to freedom of that. But the principle of rest still remains the same. Actually, in Russia they tried to do away with the seven day calendar. They went to a five day calendar and it just didn't work. Families were breaking down, the schools were breaking down, had to go back to the seven day work. So again, another testimony to God's design. But the Sabbath was around before the Mosaic law. So it's a good principle to remember. That's that's a bonus feature. You can buy any water bar for that day. Um, you know, water bar is. But anyway, so Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the truth number four, is that Jesus is Lord. That means he has ultimate authority, he is the master, and he's the lawgiver of the Sabbath. So fourth point, Jesus is Lord. That's a good thing. We need a righteous master. And Jesus is. And the next case, he goes in the synagogue, and there's a gentleman there who has a withered hand. And Everybody's looking to see if he's going to heal this guy, and the Pharisees are also looking if he's going to heal anybody. And what does Jesus do? Like, again, is it lawful to do good or do harm? To do good or do bad? What do you think? What do you guys think? Is it lawful to do good or do harm? What, what is it? It's lawful, right? You can heal somebody on the Sabbath. That seems like a good deed. But the Pharisees say, no, you cannot heal on the Sabbath. No way. <laughs> Seriously, come on. So what does Jesus do? He stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored instantly, completely. And what do the Pharisees do? Like, wow, Jesus, you are the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the king. You forgive people. You came to call sinners. You know, you're going to die and grace the dead. You worship me. What do they do? No. Look at verse 6. What do they do? The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him so that they might destroy him. Oof. So, Keep in mind, these are Pharisees. They believe in the Torah. They believe in the Old Testament. They know the Mosaic Law. But they miss Jesus. They miss him completely. They think you actually have to be a good person to be a Christian. They think that you have to be a good person to be a Yahweh. And they're wrong on that. Because you can't. There's only one person that was ever perfect. Who was that? Jesus Christ. The man. And he was in the worship of Christ. Perfect. But what are they going to do with him? They're going to work together with the Herodians. Which are Herod Antichrist here, which are more faithful to Rome than are to Israel. So they're going to use any form of work together to kill Jesus. They normally don't hang out, <laughs> but they're going to partner together to basically want to kill Jesus, which is all part of God's plan. Isn't that amazing that they want to do that to him? You can't just heal some guy in the Sabbath. They should be like, whoa, this is God working among us, right? No. Their hearts are just callous. They've already made up their minds. Their religiosity determines what they're going to do. Not God's word, not God's revelation, not faith. It's their own pride. And that's what they live by. And so we think that would stop Jesus' ministry, right? All that opposition would stop Jesus' ministry? No. 
And verses 7 to 12, we see that his ministry actually grows. Here's another map I have in here. You can flip the next PowerPoint. Is you kind of can see the whole map of, that's Capernaum, by the way. It's kind of the, um, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the tax collector probably had this place somewhere in there along the sea as you collect tax for people going up to, up to Rome, wherever, maybe even seaports during the winter. But the next one, you can see that you have uh, all these different lands. And all these lands, <clears throat> you can see, this is a wide region. I mean, Israel's about the size of New Jersey. It's not a big country. But in this sense, everyone's coming. We see there we even have people from Jerusalem, which would be the religious headquarters of Israel. And you have people coming from Judea. You have people coming from Galilee. You have people coming from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan. And even the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard all of that he was doing in the kingdom. There were people from Gentiles. They, they know this guy is, is something. This is not just an ordinary man. This is, this is God's son. So the Pharisees may have their little area, but this population is known. And it's a threat to them. And that's what they're scared of. So this is basically the crowd are just bombarding them. And <coughs> if um, you've ever been to like a Husker game and you notice there's tons of people there, a big crowd, you can't even move them. That's what's going on here with these people um, at Capernaum and along the seashore. So what does Jesus do? He has to put out into a boat. And you notice in verse 10 that as he movement, <coughs> with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And so the demons are actually acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. So this is a problem Jesus sees because he doesn't want to be associated with the demons telling him that he's the son of God. You think about it. Your enemy's trying to tell you you are. The, the Jewish people are trying to accuse him of being Satan, which they will. But also we see something interesting. I found a quote that was interesting by one commentator who says that Mark, the author of the book of Mark, he probably intended to contrast with the demons acknowledged as a fact that Jesus is the son of God. What the religious leaders were not willing to consider as a possibility. Wow. Isn't that amazing that the demons know who he is? But even the religious leaders of Israel, who shouldn't have known him, they don't even see it as a possibility that he's the son of God. They just write it off. And Jesus says in verse 12, and earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So he says, tell the demons and not keep quiet. So he doesn't make a big publicity out. Isn't that amazing how Jesus so humble says he does that? He knows, he already knows what's going to happen. So we see these, all these accusations against Jesus. Here are a few things. So Jesus has, what? He has, how does he, what does he have to do with forgive sins? He has, yeah. And then he also, Jesus came to call. Then Jesus predicted his. And, and then Jesus is, all those truths are amazing. And my application today for you is, is if you think that you have to be a good person to be a Christian, you got the wrong religion. Because in Christianity, you have to realize you're a sinner. You're a bad person before you can be saved. It's a big difference. And I know that's hard for you guys to grasp because you're just having a mindset. You gotta be good. You gotta be good. Gotta work hard. Well, Jesus is the only person that's true. He came on this earth. Adam came in the world. And sin came in the earth. Jesus came in the world. Righteous sin. So he can take your place in you. So we're gonna have total forgiveness for all those things, past, present, and future. 
So they're offering a quick replacement, and now they have justification. That means they're basically trying to write with God permanently, judicial forgiveness, as if they never sinned. So believers can rest in God's perfect work on the cross and his perfect life, and they can rest in his righteousness. That's what propels missionaries to go to Burma. That's what propels missionaries to go to China. That's what propels missionaries to go tell the gospel, even when they're going to be persecuted. Because they already know that they're forgiven. Their security and salvation in Christ is secure. That's amazing. And so if you know that, you're going to love Jesus. You're going to worship him all the time. Because that's who saved you. So that's my, my hope for you guys. Hopefully that clarifies some things. That you just can't yourself sinner. And we all need Jesus. And you don't graduate from the gospel. Even now, I haven't been a leader for like 20 years. I still need the gospel. Because it humbles me and numbers who Jesus is saving my victory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that I get to just open up your word and talk about you, Father. And Lord, I know that the truth is what impacts people. It's not me. I'm just a messenger. Lord, I pray in all this information that everybody receives just how glorious you are as a Savior. And Lord, that those who are believers here would would want to be like Christ and go after the lost and have a good testimony among them and not compromise and yet continue to hold out the gospel. So help them to be wise, help them to live a life of holiness, but also, Lord, to really love Christ and to follow him and be like him. For those who don't know you right now that are on the fence or, or really just know they're sinners, Lord, they would see that the floodgates of heaven are open wide, that we would allow them to come to you and be saved. That now is the day of salvation. So I pray for anyone here that is convicted of their sin, that they would see how great a Savior Jesus Christ is. And they would turn from their selfish, sinful ways and their pride and want to put all their faith in Christ. To rest in Him alone to save. Because you're the only one that has the power to save. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Lord. You are the perfect Savior. The perfect man, but also the Son of God. We thank you for the gospel Christian. I pray you bless this school. That there would just be... A, a conviction of just the need for Christ. And Lord, I pray this would impact every single soul in this day. Christ's name.